This is Across Culture, the podcast exploring culture, identity, and the Christian faith. Hosted by Jesse Tang. Well, welcome back to another episode of Across Culture. Just want to say something. I feel like it is not a mistake that you are listening to this episode. Please do prayerfully consider what God might be speaking to you through it. It was a privilege to speak to Reverend Mark Nam, and this is an interview that I did with him. Enjoy. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Very good to see you, Jesse. Yeah, you too. And am I right in thinking that you are the first BBC British-born Chinese priest in the Church of England? I, I can't say that entirely for sure, because I'm not quite sure we've tracked down every single... Okay. Uh, Chinese heritage priest, but I may be in and around there, but certainly the first, third or fourth generation British-born Chinese. Yeah. There aren't many of us. That's the point. As in, as in, what do you mean by third or fourth generation British-born oh, right. Chinese? So <laughs> on my father's side, I'm third gen. So my grandfather came across to the UK in the 1920s. Ah. But on my mother's side, I'm fourth generation because it was my great grandparents who came across. Mm, I see, I see. Great. Where are you based at the moment? Um, at the moment, I'm based in East Bristol. Okay, cool. Nice. Well, yeah, I just want to welcome you to Across Culture. And thank you for carving time out to speak with me on the podcast. It's so great to have you. I feel a little bit like it's a long time coming because I wanted to interview <laughs> you for a while already. So I'm so glad that we finally got to this stage. Um, I'd love you to introduce yourself, actually. So this might be some people who don't know who you are. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where are you, and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I'd love to. So my name's uh, Mark Nam, and I'm uh, Chinese. But as I said earlier on, I'm third gen. So my parents were born here, and my grandparents on my mother's side were too. So for the longest time, I haven't really had much to do or been in touch with my Chinese heritage. Uh, but it's only in recent years since I began training to become a priest in the Church of England that I've really begun to embrace that part of my identity. But I was born in Wales, hmm. um, but I've spent over half my life growing up and working in Hong Kong, where I originally went out there to do law. But after a few years, I quit uh, for two reasons. Number one, my girlfriend at the time didn't want to be married to a lawyer. Wow. She did the crazy hours I'd work. <laughs> um, so I quit for her, for love. She's now oh, my wife. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a story behind that. Uh, and, the, and the other reason is, um, as part of a really small church, but we really felt that God was doing something special in the city. And so, yeah, I decided to um, volunteer for a year at that church before um, becoming employed. So I worked in a church in Hong Kong as a pastor and then moved over here in 2016. That's me. Oh, wow. Okay. So you quit doing law whilst you were in Hong Kong? Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's quite hard to do because you work so hard and you pay a lot of money to do it as well because I was, I was paying international fees. But just at the end of the day, I just couldn't, it just wasn't how I wanted life to be. I didn't want to have to sleep and eat and shower in an office because I'm waiting for a fax from the States to come through or something. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time and I had envisaged a life where we wanted a family mm. and my career wouldn't have, wouldn't have been compatible. I know other people make it work. But we, mm -hmm. we, we could, I don't think we could have. So yeah, I, I laid it down. Oh, wow. Amazing. And um, what is your career now? 
Right. Well, um, <laughs> Korea is is an interesting word. Yeah. I, I wouldn't use it to to um, define what I do, but my calling or my vocation is as a priest uh, in the Church of England, and I guess how that's different from being a pastor of a non-denominational church in Hong Kong is that being a priest, you're part of the national church. So it's, it's kind of an institution that mixes a little bit with politics as well. It's very much part of the fabric of British society. So I'm part of the establishment, the established church. Uh, and, you know, there aren't, there isn't much diversity. There certainly aren't many people who are Chinese or East Asian in it. And so, yeah, I felt calls, you know, to, to, to serve in this way. I didn't expect to be doing that when I came across in 2016. Mm. Um, but but here we are. And actually, it, it might be worth sharing uh, why I decided to do that. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. I was pastoring in Hong Kong uh, before, and, you know, I just needed some theological education. I'd been working over 10 years as a pastor, but only had legal training. So we chose Trinity College in Bristol um, because it was near our home, where our, where our families are from in Wales. But shortly after starting, um, you know, I, I realized that being part of the established church could be really, really good uh, in terms of diversity, in terms of representation, in terms of making a difference. And I was really inspired by the first ordained Anglican woman in the world. So this is very significant oh, because wow. she happens to be from Hong Kong. Mm. So I really felt that was, um, you know, something from God, almost like a sign uh, or, or an inspiration for me to believe that someone of Chinese heritage, myself, that I could blaze a trail for others as well. And what's really interesting with this woman, her name's Florence, is in 1942, she was ordained because they couldn't, they didn't have enough male priests in Hong, in Macau during the war. And they couldn't get them from Hong Kong to Macau because Japanese occupied it. But after the war, she was told to hang up her orders, which is terrible. But thankfully, she's since been recognized again for being a priest. But she was the first woman um, in the world, oh, okay. in Anglican communion, to be priested. And she's an inspiration to me. Wow, yeah, that sounds really amazing. Uh, it's great to hear that, um, the story behind it as well. And I was also wondering, because uh, you talked about you are pastoring a church in Hong Kong, a non-denominational church as well. So before you went to Hong Kong, were you also a believer? And if so, were you in a Church of England church or a non-denominational one? Or yeah, how did yeah. you get into the Church of England? Yeah, um, so I was born in the UK and I was christened, uh, so baptised as a child in the Church of Wales, which is still Anglican, but we lived in Wales. Okay. So my parents were believers already. Um, but we went to Hong Kong when I was a child, when I was 18 months. And yeah, I was brought up in an Anglican church in Hong Kong. So I've done Wales, I'm doing Hong Kong. <laughs> and when I returned to the UK for high school, it was then that I decided to go to a different church for my parents because the Anglican church they were going to didn't have many young people. It was a bit dry. Right. So I actually ended up going to a Pentecostal church for many years up until university. So I had quite a broad spectrum, a range of, of churchmanship, it's called. Um, yeah, I think during university, I was keen to discover a bit more about my roots. So then I went to a Chinese church in Cardiff, <laughs> mm. which is, it's, which is a totally, it's its own thing. Um, did that for a number of years. And then when I went to Hong Kong and quit law, 
yeah, the church I was part of was was non-denominational. So I started out with the Anglican church, but spent a long time away from it, even leading a church that wasn't until I returned to the UK. That's my church background. So that means you've been to the UK. So you came back for high school, but then you also came back Mm -hmm. when you're older. So after high high school, I went went back to Hong Kong. And what happened was my mum, during my law degree, had cancer and she was sick for a year before she died. Mm. And I just wasn't in a good place. So my Mm. father said, take a gap year. And, you know, of all the places I wanted to go, I wanted to return to Hong Kong. Maybe it's because... I had lots of happy memories there, maybe because it's a good place to start in Asia because people speak English. Yeah. Um, and and so so that's why I went to Hong Kong, came back to finish my law degree, and then went back again to work. So there's been quite a lot of crisscrossing between the UK um, and Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. And I'm actually curious about something because I know that there's something, it's an organization called Welcome Churches. And I know in particular in the last year or two, they've done a lot of focus about welcoming immigrants from Hong Kong, refugees and immigrants from Hong Kong. I think it's called, is it called UKHK or HKUK? It's called UKHK. Okay, UKHK. So are you involved in that in any capacity as well? Yeah, my my connection to it is informal. So I'm not officially um, part of the team that run it. But uh, they did approach me and ask me to be an ambassador. So I guess oh. that's what I am. Um, because I really, you know, I really support what they're doing. They're trying to mobilize uh, churches and other communities, actually, to welcome those coming from Hong Kong, uh, for whatever reason they're coming across. And, you know, I, I, growing up in the UK as someone who looked different, I mean, I consider myself British. But even as someone who's British and looking different, I... I experienced my, I believe, quite a bit of prejudice and challenges. So all the more I'm, I'm, you know, concerned for those coming across from Hong Kong who might not necessarily understand British culture as well, despite yeah. having British national overseas um, passports. So, yeah, I really wanted to get to get involved um, with that. Um, and and yeah, and it's been great. Like I've connected with so many great people, great organizations and churches. They're doing fantastic stuff to help people settle, to find their feet, uh, to, to, to come integrated, to find schools, healthcare, housing. It's been a real pleasure. Is there like a specific role you have as an ambassador? Or is it just, like you said, networking with other people and helping them? Yeah, there's no defined role. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's just leveraging the relationships and utilizing the networks I have to try and raise awareness and to connect people. Um, so one of the things I was able to do in Bristol, uh, for example, was I was connected already with the mayor's office um, uh, to do some other, other other things, I think, about racism. Uh, mm. But I was then able to connect the local Chinese church, the Bristol Chinese church, with one of the uh, Br- Bristol City Council forums. You know, and I thought that was really, really, really cool. You know, that was a really, really, a real watershed moment, I think, because it was the first time I think the Chinese church had anything to do with the council. And I was able to broker that relationship and also bring in the church because a lot of those coming from Hong Kong, their first port of call is the church. They know it's a safe place. People speak the language, understand their culture. And yet the church wasn't necessarily inputting into the city council's um, strategies and things for this. So I saw a big gap that needed to be 
you know, filled in and connected. So yeah, I get, I get to do uh, cool stuff like that, which is really good fun. Uh, the <laughs> other thing is, you know, uh, I know the Chinese church has had over 50, 60 families, I think, and they need spaces to meet. Now, as a Church of England minister, I don't just have my two churches, but I'm connected with all of the other Anglican ministers across Bristol. So I was able to connect um, the vicar of two churches in Stoke. I can't remember the name now. It's not Stoke Bishop. Uh, it's a part of Bristol anyways. Uh, Bradley Stoke. And they were able to say to the Chinese communities that were gathering there, quite a large one, hey, we can provide you space for meetings, for schools or whatever. So it's been really good creating those connections as well. Mm, I think that's so cool and so important because I feel like you are really, uh, you're really uniquely placed in the, in the sense that you know lots of people and you're in lots of different networks. And then, like you said, leveraging that and bringing people together and helping people work with one another as well. So, yeah, so it's cool that, you know, I know you as well, <laughs> not just through this podcast, but through um, other things that we're up to. And I, I would love to ask you about this thing that you started. I think it's your picture, your Zoom picture as well. Um, the wonderful. Did you make the logo? Uh I had the idea for it, but I had a friend in America, you know, put it together oh. using the graphics program called Christine. But yeah, okay. I, I can so tell nice. you the story behind it, actually. I've got it on the yeah. screen there. Yeah, yes, please do. So it's, 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 it's the word T in Chinese. Um, and interestingly, it's made of three radicals, if you can read Chinese. And one of the radicals means uh, leaves, one means tree, and one means person. Because for T, a person has to climb the tree to pick the leaves. That's what the three radicals mean. Wow. <laughs> and as a Christian, I think of the one person who hung on a tree so that we might have life and that's signified in the leaves. So there's a bit of symbolism just behind, you know, the character for tea. Um, but what I've, what, what I've done is I've stuck it in the logo on a round tea cake. So back in the day, that's how tea was uh, put together. They used to compress it and pack it into round discs, like they call them cakes. And they, and they put it on a little stand there. And of course, you know, the round circle is such an inclusive shape, such a complete shape. Again, I think that really speaks into those, you know, trying to reconcile themselves to their identity. You know, when they're caught between cultures, are, are, you know, am I British, am I Chinese? That circle is, is kind of meant, meant to bring some hope there. So that's the idea behind uh, the logo. But of course, tea, um, you know, is, is quintessentially British. But of course, it's steeped in Chinese history. And I just love that idea of, of the blending of the two cultures, the blending of tea to create a new aroma. And you said earlier on how you notice I'm quite uniquely placed. A lot of British Chinese are kind of in that liminal place of bringing together, of blending together cultures. And I really believe, you know, that, uh, that, that people in these liminal spaces have, have a very important gift to bring the church, a gift of reconciliation of create, creating connections um, in, in the body and even knocking down some of the walls mm. that divide us. So that's yeah. kind of the idea behind the tea house. And that is so deep. <laughs> uh, thank you for going through the logo as well. And yeah, what's your vision? I mean, I mean, you shared a little bit already and what kind of things do you do in the tea house? It, you know, is it a network? You know, what kind of things have you been involved with? Well, that's a great question, and I might frustrate you and the listeners because my, my answer is going to remain a little bit elusive. 
um, because it's quite hard to define it. Let me let me explain. What you know, there are certain movements out there um, which have got a lot of momentum and they're really great. So the one that springs to mind actually is Black Lives Matters. It was a movement that gained a lot of momentum, rightfully so, and people became aware of it. But what I noticed with these things as they grow is that it's about the people pointing towards, you know, the umbrella organization or movement, right? So, you, so it has almost like either an agenda or an ideology or values that it carries. What I've done with the tea house is flipped it on its head. And I've said, look, the tea house doesn't have a brain. It's not a thinking person. But the objective of it is to point people to the few Chinese heritage priests in the Church of England who do have a mind, who do have opinions. Wow. Because actually, even amongst the 12 of us or 13 of us, we have very different views on different things, be it immigration or sexuality or money or whatever. So if the tea house started to form its own identity and mind mm. or makes its mind up on any particular topic, it would alienate some within the group. Mm. And people, and then people would keep saying, what does the tea house think about this? What does the tea house think about that? And then it pulls away the attention from the people who I'm hoping to you know, illuminate and draw attention to. So the tea house is about pointing to Chinese heritage clergy. So that means priests. Right. who have been overlooked, in my opinion. So that's the first thing it does alongside just, just creating a, a supportive place. But you asked about my vision. I think moving forward, perhaps in the coming year, you know, I'd like to open it up a bit wider to also draw attention to Chinese heritage laity. And that's the church word for people who aren't ordained. So church members or members of a congregation, because there are a number of church wardens or readers you know, serving, who've served in the church for years, and again, don't have a voice, whose concerns and issues are not picked up by the church, right? So it's trying to raise the profile of, of Chinese heritage people and not trying to become something big itself, you know? If I was to have a, a catchphrase or something, it'd be like, not trying to grow a big organization, but trying to grow big people, yeah. Oh, that's a good catchphrase. So you just make that up? Yeah, just then on the spot. I'll have to really work good. in it. Uh, but the other the other reason why, you know, I, I like it like this and it's very simple is, you know, people say, well, who's the chair? Well, I'm like, well, I don't think there is a chair. Who are the trustees? Well, there aren't trustees because I've seen a number of organizations very quickly grow and they need these systems. But all of a sudden they become very unwieldy. It's like trying to turn a massive cruise ship. It takes seven miles just to turn it two degrees. Yeah. Whereas the tea house is very small, very incisive. It's like a little clipper boat. It can maneuver really quickly. And what I've discovered in terms of uh, influence, the organiza uh, organizations or even the government are, are quite open to hearing from people from the tea house because we're not a threat. We're actually quite small. Yeah. We haven't got like a big agenda on any particular thing. And yet we're very clearly defined. We're very small. We're Chinese heritage clergy. So they can hear our voice. If we were wider, so I did consider making it about East Asians or East and Southeast Asians. Yeah. But it would start getting too big. And again, we'd have so many voices, we can't turn quick enough to respond to contemporary society and issues. So, you know, some people said to me, Mark, is it too exclusive, right? I said, no, no, that's not the idea. It's about being effective. But we want to, I would want the tea house to work 
with other groups. So if someone set up a similar group for South Asians, or I don't know, a, a, a group for, for other demographics of people, you know, we'd want to work together. And I think that actually reflects the um, unity and diversity that I see in the Bible better than if we were like one massive big movement yeah. trying to speak the voices of everybody and then nobody gets heard. Mm. So yeah, I see that the clearly defined identity, Chinese heritage clergy, but then there's also, like you said, there isn't like one view that everyone takes. It's, is that not confusing? I think I'm just trying to get my head around it. So you've got this clearly defined identity, but you also don't have the same identity when it comes to- Well, I won't say not the same, we don't have the same views. Okay. Right, you know, one of, one of the issues facing, I think, East Asian communities is that, you know, racist discourse kind of homogenizes us into one big monolith. That's why, for example, there's a lot of perhaps a mistrust or anxiety when people think of Hong Kong as coming over because it's treated like there's a big wave of people, nameless, faceless, like this massive movement of people who will take our jobs, take our homes, right? Right. But actually, if we recognize people as being very different, you, you can't then lump them all together, if you see what I mean. So I think yeah. the tea house, I didn't want the tea house to have like a particular view on any particular thing. Because like I said, as individuals, as people, we have different opinions about things. And it's a really safe place for us to talk about them. Um, the minute mm -hmm. we say the tea house stands for this on this subject, there might be some in the group who suddenly feel like they have to be quiet or who don't and so forth. And I just, yeah, I think there's a space yeah. and a place for organizations that have a particular, you know, agenda or something which they need to push to change things. But that's not what the tea house is about. And I have to resist the temptation to become, you know, a political part, some, a, a group that's political. Because um, a lot of people are, are kind of wanting it to be. They can see oh, that really? it has some traction, you know, oh. but, but I, don't, I don't, I'm trying to stick to, you know, to, to what it's for. And that's just for the voices of Chinese heritage clergy or, and laity to be heard. That's great. We just need our voices to be heard and our stories and people will see, yeah, the nuance in our stories that we see things differently because each one of yeah. us is also unique. Which is true. Yeah, I, I like that. It's not like, yeah, don't put us into this box where you're this heritage, therefore you should be like this. But that's not the case. And that uh, reminded me of when you were showing the logo earlier and th with the circle, it's kind of like eating around circular tables. And I know Chinese restaurants often, if I'm not mistaken, the tables are circular and it's like everyone has an equal place and you can eat at the same time. And so that made me think about that when you were talking. So each person can have a voice and you don't want to stifle anyone's voices as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. good to hear and really good to consider. I was also thinking earlier, you spoke about um, thinking more about your Chinese heritage, um, especially as it comes into theology and faith. Uh, I wonder if there's any examples or anything that you'd like to share that you might have discovered or some ways in which you've been uh, reading the Bible with this lens of being British, British Chinese or Chinese heritage. I don't know what you want to call yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a very 
it's a very difficult thing to talk about because I was talking to some friends I have who work at the uh, Asian School of Theology at Fuller University in the United States, and they've been running about 50 years. And they themselves are saying, even after 50 years, we're still trying to work out the vocabulary to articulate the lived experience of, you know, Asian Americans. Mm. All right. The, the vocabulary doesn't even exist. We're trying to formulate it. So it's quite difficult to describe, um, but I, I'm going to try my, try my best. I think there was a point where I was feeling that I had re repressed my Chinese identity. So I'm just going to give you a little journey. And so for a while, particularly during theological college, it felt like I was having to delve in deep and find this identity of mine that had been repressed. So I was trying to recover it. Okay. And that sounds really compelling, actually, and really good. And, you know, I'd share stories about when I used to go to church, I'd have to park my Chinese identity outside, you know, mm. to be accepted. And I talk about the cardinal sin of being made to assimilate, denying myself. And then, of course, the tension inside it creates the rupture uh, and on all of the associated mental health risks and stuff to that. And I was kind of happy sitting there. <laughs> but only a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I began to realize that perhaps even this is, is not quite right because it's working on absolutes. It's assuming that... I do have a true me, a true identity hidden beneath that was repressed. Okay, that's the premise. That's the assumption. But the truth of the matter is people like myself are, as we've said, people who are quite liminal, who've lived mm. in flux. And maybe it's a little bit too two-dimensional for me just to be trying to redeem a identity that I perceive to be there. Yes. If you see what I mean. I'm just falling yes. back into the same trap and the truth of the matter is you know when i'm yeah i can be very honest with you <laughs> and whoever's listening <laughs> but my wife and i help run a group called little bean sprouts on sat every two weeks for a lot of honk cantonese speaking families to come together little bean sprouts it's really cute Aww, that's cute but we're the only people there who aren't born in hong kong okay and it's you know and we we welcome people and they welcome us, but it is challenging to communicate and understand each other. We have the same color skin. We look yeah. the same ostensibly on the outside, but there's a difference. And so I'm like, but surely if I try and find my true ch Chinese self, there shouldn't be a problem. So can you see the pressure I'm putting on myself? So I've begun to realize and learn that perhaps I, my cultural identity is one that shifts and moves. And that's very uncomfortable for people like myself who like to put things in boxes or to try and understand them, to make them static. Mm. But I think there's something in this that I'm only sharing this because I'm learning to grapple with it myself. And as I said at the start, it's hard to find the right vocabulary for it. But I, so it's not so much about me finding that identity that was repressed, but it's about finding this other identity that exists. You know, and there's been a lot of stuff written about third culture kids TCKs and that language is is quite helpful in terms of this. So finding one's true identity, I think, when I think about it, we probably will never find it because, you know, as a Christian, we've been saved by God, but we're continually being sanctified, discovering who we really are in Christ. And actually, until he comes again, 
where we only fully comprehend who we truly are in him. Right now, we have a taste of the kingdom. We see the kingdom breaking in. But the Bible says he will give us more than we can ask or imagine. So actually, the fullness of who I am, I have to look to Christ Jesus. And even when I look at him, I can only still in my limited mind, not quite fully comprehend the gloriousness of him who has ascended and at the right hand. So I think to try and nail down one's identity and be so sure of it perhaps is not the point anymore for me. But I'm on a journey of discovering my true identity um, mm. with him. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think, I think this kind of journey or this progression is significant. I don't know if even progression is the right word, but about no. identity. I mean, they, they talk about it in identity theory as well. One mm. camp says identity is static and the other camp says identity is dynamic. And yeah, you just give me the right words for it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and depending on where you are, you might identify differently and what you learn about yourself, what you learn about your heritage and what country you live in, where you move around, that changes as well over time. So yeah, it's just interesting for me to hear you speak about knowing our true identity in Christ isn't going to come yet. And knowing our cultural identities will, will always change. So, <laughs> so who are we? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a work in progress. I don't mean to speak heresy at this point. I'm, <laughs> I myself am a disciple try, trying to work it out. But, but, but the interesting yeah. place, sorry if you can hear my children, they're just outside my study, okay. um, locking on the door. Oh, Where this impacts me in terms of my current thinking is, is one of the things I'm passionate about is obviously um, engaging with racial injustice uh, and so forth. So, you know, one of the reasons I set up the tea house was um, to, to draw awareness of people of Chinese and East Asian heritage, and also to highlight the different types of racism that people perhaps in the communities I represent um, face and endure. And for a while, I've been thinking, well, I really need to reclaim my Chinese identity, right? And you know, really be proud of it, like wear perhaps, you know, Chinese inspired vestments, which is like what clergy wear, you know, um, use more East Asian motifs in my presentations and stuff. So that was one way of trying to do it. But I've been really challenged lately. Because I've been mulling upon this idea of, and again, the vocabulary is difficult, of de destabilizing the colonial project. So the colonial project back in the past, it sought to say that anyone who wasn't white European was lesser. Okay. So catch that, that that's the first thing it's trying to keep power and take it away from others. So that's the oppressiveness. But on the other hand, the colonial project, particularly through missionaries also wanted to try and assimilate people to become more like them. Okay, so you want to yep. repress them, yep. but you want to make them like you. Now, I've realized that I live in a space, a liminal space as a third or fourth gen BBC, where actually I'm very adept and I'm very privileged, I use that word deliberately, to be able to assimilate very, very well. I can speak English as well as my British friends. I know the culture because I was brought up on it just as well as them. What I've begun to realize is 
rather than trying to play up my Chinese identity, if I just play up my British identity, it creates a point for against the colonial project where they say, you are now so like me, I have to question my identity, my own colonial identity, right? And therefore, is the assumption that you're, you or your people are lesser than me really valid? It's called mimicry. I've been reading about it, mimicking. The, for the longest time, they wanted the colonized people, be they from India or China or wherever, to try and be like us, which would be kind of white Eurocentric. But what happens when someone actually succeeds, actually ticks all the boxes, actually achieves that goal, because you've set it for them, where they are, I am exactly like you, exactly. There's only one thing that remains different and only one. And that's the color of my skin. Now, if you're still treating me different, what does that say about you? Can you see how the question then to, comes back round on the ones who do the colonizing to the other? Mm. So it's, so there are two basically paths one can take about res creating resistance. So one is a red, you know, um, reclaiming one's cultural identity as a form of resistance, right? I'm proud to be Chinese and I'm gonna be unabashed about it. And that's one form of resistance against racism. But this other one that I've been thinking about is slightly different. It's saying, okay, I will go along. So it's basically a type of resistance that's not oppositional. So this is what I'm trying to tease out here. There's oppositional resistance where I claim my cultural inheritance and say, you got to get used to it, got to get it in there. It's oppositional. Yeah. There's another one that says, fine, you colonized my people, so just for lack of better words. Yeah. But we have actually assimilated to the point where it's now mimicry. At which point now, if there's any prejudice going on, why is it there? What is it? It can't be based on cultural difference, and so to speak. And I think this speaks to the phenomenon that in America, you have fifth and sixth generation migrants yep. who still do not get the same breaks as white European migrants. So studies show across the board, you can be fifth, sixth generation Chinese. You can be so American, you're completely American. And yet there's a bamboo ceiling. And yet you can be a second or third generation, someone from maybe Ireland who's white. And yet after two or three generations, those prejudices seem to have gone. It, it seems yeah. to come back down to color. And again, it points the question to the majority. So I think there's, I'm learning that there's different ways to do resistance. And one of them is a bit more, is less oppositional. And I think as someone who's East Asian, who's mm -hmm. often been criticized by people for my proximity to whiteness, that's kind of been one of the reasons why I've started embracing my Chineseness. Cause I felt, well, no, I'm not, yeah, maybe I need to be more Chinese than I am. So can you see it? It My identity has been knocking back and forth, but I'm beginning to say, well, actually, may, maybe I am just a very British person and maybe I need to embrace that again. So my pendulum is swinging back and forth, as you can hear, mm -hmm. but there are multiple different ways to resist racism and to, you know, tackle racial injustice. Mm. And I think the East Asian voice and East Asian experience will bring a lot more theological thought and reflection upon it because as you as you can hear from me it's 
very incoherent. I'm doing my best to try and communicate it. Oh yeah, don't worry. As as you're speaking, I'm also trying to reflect upon myself and trying to think, oh, do I do it like this? Do I do it like that? And I, mm. I'm I'm sure the pendulum has swung a lot in my life. <laughs> I'm probably half your okay, maybe I'm not half your age, but I'm a bit younger than you and it, it's already swung a lot, I'm sure. Um yeah, it, it makes me think that even the non-oppositional way of resistance, like I feel like we already have, um, we already seen the re the consequences of that, as you, as you said about in the U.S. Mm. That people are still judged by the color of the skin, even though they're like really quote unquote American, and can't speak the language of their forefathers, for example. So I yes. mean, is that still something that we should think about when it comes to? our country being british or do we already know what's going to happen well 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 this is the thing because on the one hand you could say well passive resistance or whatever it is it's not passive non-oppositional resistance doesn't seem to work in the united states which is why people are pushing for more proactive um means but the thing is i think the british context is very different from the american one how different remains to be seen but the you know, British society is very hierarchical, very class-based, and it might be that non-oppositional forms of resistance might might have more success here. Mm. I don't know. I'm I, I'm I'm hesitant to <laughs> make a, a bold claim, but I am aggrieved by the fact that there is very little, particularly theological reflection upon these things from an East Asian point of view. You know, yeah. in the UK. Um, I think we only have a handful, actually not even a handful. I don't really know many British Chinese theologians full stop. I know that there are some Chinese heritage ones or some who've come from Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, so forth. But I'm not really aware of that many who were born here or brought up here who can, you know, bring, bring some of that experience in. So I, I long to see it. And that's why with the tea house, I want to really, you know, um, help people find their, their voices. So one of the, you come back to the tea house, one of the dreams I have perhaps next year is that we might become charitable in the sense that we can accept money. And then, you know, young people who are studying will probably find the site because they hear there's free money. <laughs> but actually it then creates those networks and, and that corporate theological reflection that we can do um, together. I know I won't live to see the fruit of this. As you said, you're half my age, you made me feel old. Um, <laughs> But in I'm the same way, <laughs> you know, when I talk about Florence, the first ordained Anglican, you know, I never got to thank her for blazing a trail before me. But I'm trying to honour, you know, what, what she did by living my life, you know, for, for others. I know it sounds a little bit contrived, but it but it's true. Once, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent now and, you know, I'm already thinking I'm my kids are going to be doing stuff and I won't be alive one day. I just, I really want to mm. make the church in the world better for them so for tea house and some of these efforts do that and get people speaking and help maybe find better vocabulary to describe it so we can dialogue better then i think that's that's worth doing mm, that's so powerful and i'm really excited to see what is gonna be in store in the years to come with tea house and yeah if you open it to laity maybe i can be involved <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, no, that, pick me, that, pick that, me. That, that's, that's completely the idea. We, you know, we want to. It's, I guess it's going step by step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Don't run too quickly. Yeah, I'm quite. I'm yet. quite busy as a parish priest. It's December right now, and I'm like up to the eyeballs with carol services and Christingles and stuff. So, yeah, just. I just saw your. I saw your Christingle outfit in the huge, the huge orange. You were dressed up. Yeah, it's really amazing, like Ghostbusters. Yeah, for for any of listeners you? out there out there who don't know what a Christingle is, it's uh, it's when you know you have an orange and it represents the world. You stick a candle on it, it's Jesus. Stick in some fruit, which represent the seasons, and put a red ribbon around for his blood. It's this antiquated tradition that the Church of England loves to do. So I dressed up as a big orange a few weeks ago <laughs> to illustrate it. It went down a hit. It's actually amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, Mark, thank you so much. I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, we're going to come towards the end of the interview. So if there's anything you'd like to share, then feel free to share it now. So I don't know. Do you have anything you'd like to say before we end? Mm. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes, the beginning of all wisdom is calling something by its proper name. When my grandparents came across from China to the UK, they lost their names. They got mm. all mixed up at immigration, which is a very common experience. And that really set, I believe, you know, the pace for my family where we've had so much identity issue and, and misunderstanding. Um, but I had a wonderful moment I want to share with you about names is the day before I was ordained priest, which is a big deal, my bishop got in touch with me. Now, when the bishop gets in touch with you the day before, you think, oh, no, there's something wrong. They found some piece of dirt, an old Twitter post or whatever. <laughs> but actually, my bishop, and remember, we've talked about balances of power um, today. My bishop, number one, asked me for permission. So this is someone in the institution who's giving me power and they're saying, I want permission. Can I ask? Can I ordain you with your full name? So number two, there's a recognition that I have a history, I have a past, I have a culture that sometimes I feel like I need to cover up, but my bishop is saying I want to acknowledge it and call it out. Wow. And on the day of my ordination so powerfully, when she called me by my Chinese name, in a spiritual sense, it felt as if she was restoring that mm. which had been broken. I was being recognized in the church for who I truly am. And I guess, I would want to encourage anyone out there who, you know, is either British Chinese or East Asian or, or actually from anywhere else, you know, where, where identity can sometimes be a question or a struggle, but to know that God has named you, he's called you by name and he's, he's placed you here. And I believe despite the struggles, maybe because of the struggles, um, you'll have a very important ministry moving forward that can make a difference for others. So I hope this time has been encouraging for you. And yeah, that's what I'd like to share today. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. That's beautiful, Reverend Mark Nam. And how can we find you online or where can we find more about you? Yep. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, the same handle. It's at Mark Nam, M-A-R-K-N-A-M. Um, and in terms of a tea house, you can just go to theteahouse.org. And there are links there to the social media channels. Cool. Would and we can we can find some of your interviews from BBC online as well. Is it? All yeah, just there? type it, type in my name. There's a really good, <laughs> apart from this one, there's a really good 30 minute <laughs> podcast with the Church Times. 
Ooh. Uh, which is which is really good. Um, nice. But yeah, thank you, Jesse. Thanks for yeah. talking to me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review or rating on whatever podcast platform that you use. And don't forget to follow at Across Culture Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and subscribe.